You're entering Outer Brightness. Welcome everyone to the Outer Brightness Podcast. Paul here. We have a very special guest on today's episode. Paul Cardall is a successful pianist and recording artist whose albums have topped the Billboard charts. I recently saw a post on Facebook alluding to the fact that Paul had posted on his musician page about his own journey from Mormonism to faith in Jesus Christ over the past decade. I reached out to him to ask if he would be interested in coming on our podcast to share his faith journey, fully expecting that his schedule would have him too busy for a little podcast like ours. So when he responded that he would be happy to come on the show, I was super excited. Paul Cardall is a really kind soul with a fascinating story, and we were happy to have him join us. Leaving Mormonism presents challenges socially, psychologically, and theologically. His music has been important to me as I made my transition out of Mormonism. It's quiet, peaceful, and beautiful, and I often listen to it on Sunday mornings. When I listen to his album of Latter-day Saint hymns, It reminds me of my youth and allows me to connect with my past in enlivening, healing, and healthy ways, even though I no longer believe that Mormonism is an authentic movement of God. We here at the Outer Brightness Podcast are interested in sharing not only our own faith journeys, but those of others as well. We may not take the same path or have the same views. We wanted to give a platform to our guest, Paul Cardall, to share his experiences and ideas freely, even where we may disagree. To see our understanding of topics such as salvation, the gospel, the trinity, etc., we recommend you listen to those previous episodes of the podcast. It's a miracle. The GMA Dev Award-winning artist Paul Cardall is alive. Yet the gifts of music that he brings us add up to something even greater. His story is in fact a testament to the human spirit, to determination and humility, and above all to love, expressed through actions and art. Born with a profound disability, Cardall would undergo critical surgeries, the first one hours after his birth. Through and beyond his childhood, he lived with essentially just half of his heart. Not surprisingly, he grew up fully aware of mortality, augmented by the shock of losing his closest friend in an auto-pedestrian accident when he was just 16. Grief and existential questions haunted him. Yet, he grew through it all. His convictions and optimistic personality led him onto a path out from despair, and music lit the way down that path. With the piano as his foundation, he created, performed, and recorded original pieces, some of them intimate, others buoyed on orchestral wings. Success came his way. In 1994, author Richard Paul Evans invited him to compose a musical adaptation of his number one New York Times best-selling novel, The Christmas Box. The resulting album and Evans' mentorship essentially helped launch his professional recording career. In 1999, Cardall founded Stone Angel Music. It became the platform from which he would release his albums independently, eventually going on to debut at number one on eight Billboard charts and solidifying a worldwide enduring following. 
The Pianist has impressively earned over 2 billion streams on Pandora alone. Then, in 2009, another miracle. While living in a children's hospital, composing for and sharing experiences with parents of children suffering from congenital heart disease, Kardal was notified that a heart had become available to him. It had belonged to a young man who had taken his own life after his family had returned to Mexico. Receiving a normal functioning heart was, in Cardall's words, like I had been driving an old truck all my life and that was all I knew. Then doctors gave me the keys to a Porsche. I had to calm down a little bit, he joked. My brain was receiving normal oxygen flow for the first time in my life, and I was like a computer rebooted to full power, adding, They'd lowered my body temperature for surgery so many times throughout my life that after the transplant with my newfound energy, I actually had to relearn my music. Clearly, Cardall is still on that path that his experiences had opened. Much lies ahead, most likely in a greater variety as well as in charitable areas beyond music. But now, ten years after the transplant, Cardall's story is continuing to evolve as an artist, author, and humanitarian. His upcoming album, The Broken Miracle, which will be available for pre-order this December, was inspired by J.D. Neto's biographical fictional novel, based on real events in the artist's life, from being born with only half a heart, enduring a series of surgeries, which culminated in a heart transplant. While waiting for a donor heart, the pianist's brother was tragically killed. The album will feature several award-winning guests, including David Archuleta, Ty Herndon, Thompson Square, Neon Trust is Tyler Glenn and more. I'm totally afraid of lightning. I'm like, it's like I'm on the highest level of this Victorian mansion office building. Like, but there's a Catholic church right next to me with a big cross. So that's higher up. So if the lightning hits, it'll probably cross, be good. Take it. Yeah, the cross will do it for me. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. No, you're good. All right. Welcome everyone to the Outer Brightness podcast. My name is Paul and my co-host Michael and Matthew and I started this podcast with the goal of sharing our faith journeys from being active, faithful Latter-day Saints to joining biblical Christianity. Our goal is also to show those who may be questioning or re-examining their faith that the life outside of the LDS church, albeit scary at first, can be filled with joy, excitement, and freedom in Christ. It's ultimately through and in Christ alone that we have found our greatest hope and new life through spiritual rebirth. Hence the name of our podcast, Outer Brightness. Today, we're very blessed to be joined by Paul Cardall uh, on the podcast. We'll give an introduction to him and his work, and then we'll dive into him sharing his uh, faith journey to Christ. Paul, welcome to the Outer Brightness podcast. Good to be with you guys. All right. So you've been uh, through a transition recently, but uh, why don't we start kind of at the beginning of your story? Uh, would you share with our listeners something about your upbringing? Were you, where were you born? Were you raised as a Latter-day Saint? And what role did God and religion play in your early life? Great question. I grew up in Salt Lake City and, you know, I, I do genealogy. I still love genealogy. Um, if I look at my ancestry, every single person in my line came to Utah because of the church. Majority of my ancestry were, uh, for example, <laughs> had a great grandfather, great, great, great grandfather in Ireland. And he said, my father made me read the Bible way too much. So he ran away, ended up, uh, if I recall right, met this Scottish girl who introduced her to Mormonism. And she and him got married and came, you know, across 
the way that our, our ancestors came across. And um, that's like one story of many. My ancestors were in the Willie Handcart Company. Uh, they survived. Ephraim Hanks uh, rescued them. Um, and so John Taylor, my great, great, great John Taylor, 48 years old, uh, was introduced to my great, great, great grandmother, who became his seventh wife, Margaret Young. She was 19 years old. And uh, so everywhere you turn in my world was Mormonism. And people have been using the term Orthodox Mormonism lately to describe people who are very patriarchal, people who are very involved. I, I find that to be an interesting way of phrasing it. I just grew up in the lifestyle. Church is everything. We have our purpose. We know our, our mission. We know it. We know based on the narrative that was told us exactly what we're supposed to be doing. And everyone had strong, even to this day, strong testimonies of prophets. Uh, when I came into the world in 1973, my father had just gotten a job. Uh, Harold B. Lee wanted a religion, uh, wanted a reporter. And I may be a little off here, but my uh, what I remember, my father got a job with the uh, KSL, which was the church-owned news station. So my father's job all growing up was to travel with the brethren and report back on the news everything that's going on. He was with President Kimball in Israel when the Orson Hyde Memorial was dedicated. He was in the tomb with President Kimball when he asked the question, is this where Jesus was laid to rest? And President Kimball said, it doesn't matter, he's not here. And I love that response. Um, and then he's, he broke the story in 1978 about the uh, priesthood, that it would go to all worthy males. Um, he was very involved in getting that message out. It hit the CBS, CBS News, and he was the one involved. So, and I idolized my father. I still do. I think my father is fantastic. He comes from a pretty challenging childhood. He didn't have a father to teach him how to be a good priesthood father. Um, and he's done an amazing job. Uh, so I have all these siblings. There's eight of us. And everyone grew up, you know, dad's the bishop, um, very involved. We all got our Eagle Scouts uh, before the age of 14. Scouting was a big part of everything. Um, all of my brothers and I served missions. Um, my sister, Rebecca, served a mission. And everyone married in the temple, uh, except two, two of us. Um, so not even one third. So it was uh, just a beautiful childhood. And my parents, they provided the very best. And um, it's ironic now, um, knowing some of the things I know about how the church came to be, that basically um, it, it's, you know, it's, it's that grief that you experience of when you start to go, oh, wait a second, there's a real problem right here. Um, and so it, it's, it, it's a matter of you know, experiences that we have in our life that lead us to where we are desperately in need of healing. We want God to come in and heal us. And I think most people that have left Mormonism um, have, have basically just been seeking what we've been told is that there is peace available. There is joy. Um, but I also feel that you have two types of people. I don't know if you guys have read uh, Prodigal God by Timothy Keller. I think that's one of the most important books 
for somebody who doesn't know about uh, the Christianity that exists outside of Mormonism, because what it does is it introduces the parable, the prodigal son. It was the only parable that Jesus never finished. He left that question to us of what is the elder brother going to do? And, you know, you have two types of people. You have a son who wants his inheritance now. He wants the father to give him his portion so he can go out and explore. He's a seeker. He's not rooted like the elder brother who's a moralist, who does everything right because he knows he's going to get the father's inheritance. Meanwhile, the prodigal son goes out, you know, the father has to sell a portion, sell his share of the property, the land, which decreases the value then. So when the elder brother finds out, he's like, what? You've just decreased the value of my inheritance. And the father goes, wait a second, (laughs) your inheritance. And of course, the younger brother comes back and all he wants is the father. He just wants to be a slave to the father. Let me serve you. Let me help you. And that's his obsession is the father because he already squandered because we can't manage ourselves. We think we can, but we all need a higher power to help manage our lives. And the elder brother, you know, Christ leaves that, leaves that parable kind of in the hands of the Pharisees and the Sadducees of what will you do? Those of you that are moralists, those of you that are doing everything right, that's great. But what about your brother? Why didn't you go after him? You're so consumed in what you've got going on and what you're going to receive. You don't even want me, the father. So both are wrong. The moralist and uh, the, the one that goes out and seeks and squanders. And I kind of compare it to moths and butterflies. Butterflies are really beautiful and they're around in the day and everybody loves them. Everybody draws them. Moths come out at night. Moths have shorter antennas. They have a little bit of fur on them. They can fly around the darkness to get all their food, but they are so obsessed with the light. But if they get too close to it, they die. And so what I've discovered personally is that the moths among us struggle in organized religion because they are seekers and they're passionate. They're not like the elder brother who can just do everything that is required of them because they are going to get exaltation, you know? So it's what about the elder brother? And I tend to go in, in organized religion, they go after the people that are not in the family, but there's people in the family who are hurting, who need help. And when religion gets so big, it's, there's so many growing pains of how do we, how do we help those that we consider misfits, outcasts, uh, creatives, uh, moths, you know? Yeah, that's that's beautiful. I, I haven't read uh, The Prodigal, Prodigal God, but I know it was a big uh, influence on Michael, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, I read that book while I was transitioning. You know, I was like, man, what have I done? You know, I just sacrificed my salvation, you know. And then I read that book and it just, it really <clears throat> spelled, every, spelled everything out. I totally understood uh, the gospel after reading that. And I was like, man, like, yeah, I always thought that the older brother was righteous until I read, I read Tim Keller's book and I'm like, Oh, he wasn't righteous at all. He didn't even want to go into the feast at the end because he was so upset with his father because he perceived him as being unjust. He couldn't stand that he was merciful to the younger brother after what he did. So yeah, it's definitely a powerful book and I recommend it to anybody. Fascinating. I, I love your, I love your analogy about the moths. Um, when I was when I was in the last area of my mission, um, 
it was kind of coming on spring and summer of 1999 in Budapest and it was hot and humid and we used to keep the uh, the door open to our balcony uh, and there was no screen um, and so moths would get in and I'd you know I'd kill them on the ceiling and <laughs> and I uh, when I after Ange- brothers and sisters right well yeah but I mean after Angela and I got married um, I wrote a poem kind of about that and and you know, how moths are attracted to flame and, and that they'll, they'll actually fly into it and kind of thing. And um, yeah, your analogy is just, it just kind of reminds me of that, that poem. Cause I was thinking along those same lines, like, like, why was I, why was I killing these creatures that were so beautiful? You know what I mean? And, and so yeah. your analogy to, to misfits within, within organized religion is apt. I like that. Yeah. It's uh you know, I think Joseph Smith was a, was a moth. Hmm. I feel like he was a moth because he was, so fascinating. Um, everything about him is just mind blowing. And then you have Brigham Young, who's the elder brother. Um, they're so, that story is so interesting. And so, but the prodigal God sat on my toilet for 10 years. I was, it was given to me by a friend of mine who was, uh, his name is Steel Crosswhite. And Steel was in a rock and roll band and toured all over the world, open for Sheryl Crow. Uh, you know, was on a tour with Creed and all these guys. And I knew him in 2003 when I was working on a, a Faithful record. I wanted to do a worship album. In 2005, I did that worship album and we had Steel sing on it. And everything I was doing on that album was worship Christian music that I loved. And, uh, you know, but the song on there that people all know is Redeemer. Uh, that's probably my most downloaded piece of music. Um, but, uh, when I met Steel, we, we, we were getting into these little conversations cause I was so Mormon and so pro the prophets cause I love the prophets cause I've been around them. I, I know some of them and I, I, it's just, it's just, so I thought he was such a wild card, but I loved how passionate he was about God and Jesus. And I was like, where do you get the, it's like, it's like a drug for you. Like, and you're addicted to it and you can't get enough of it. And I'm like, I want that. How do I get that? He's like, well, read this. Gave me prodigal God. I put it on the back, you know, the back of the toilet under a Book of Mormon. And it, it was, I think, uh, and then 10 years later, about eight months ago, I was given a copy by a counselor who counsels musicians in the Christian music scene and country artists out here in Nashville uh, that to the company's the organization's called Porter's Call. If you know what a porter is, they were there to be available if somebody needed help in the Catholic Church. So he gave me this book, and then I started reading it, and I was like, oh, I know this book. This is the one Steele gave me. So I text Steele. He's like, well, did you, did you read it? I said, yeah, I got to get you your copy back. Because <laughs> I didn't read that, but I read this one. And my wife and I were just, what I loved about it was that it reinforced things that I believe that not all Christians believe. And that is that there is a place at the table for everybody. And I feel and believe that we're all going home. Uh, we just, some of us might get there before others, but you know, you know, that analogy of how um, there's a table and there's a place at the table for you. And pastors are big at promoting this, this idea and this story that come to the table and you come to the table and you see there's a place for you, and you're just so grateful that God did what he did through Christ and empowered you to be there, 
you know, his grace is enough and you're there. And then they end the sermon. It's over. I feel the more I study the, the life of Jesus Christ through not just, I don't just read the, I read like eight different Bibles. I've been studying the, uh, the Codex Vaticanus, which is the earliest known codex that they have that the Vatican just barely released uh, that is online that you can read. Um, it's about 300 AD and it's got the Septuagint in it. Uh, the Septuagint, obviously you guys know the is the earliest known Torah and the Christians were using in the first, second century uh, for the five books of uh, Moses. So, so I, I read all this stuff and as I'm reading all this stuff, um, I go, you know, I think we're going to get to this table and we're going to be so grateful that we're there. And that, see, that's the elder brother in me talking right there. I just, I'm going to be at the table. I know I'm going to be at the table. So, but we're going to get to that table and then we're going to recognize there's a lot of people that aren't there. And I just know we're going to be looking at Jesus and he's going to look at us and he's going to be like, let's go get him. Let's recklessly tear down, do whatever we have to do to go get him. So which of the older brothers, other brothers, would you associate yourself with? I'm a prodigal. I tried to be the elder brother for 45 years, but I came out as the prodigal because I, I'm an artist. Um, artists tend to be a little narcissistic. Uh, it's just how we're made. Um, I, I came to a point in my life through a series of a lot of personal tragedy to where I don't care about exaltation. I don't care about... You know, like it, all these things that we've been promised, you know, powers, dominions, all this stuff. It's like, I just want to be in the same vicinity and just watch Jesus do his thing. I don't want anything else. I, I, I'm not even capable of managing my own life. Why would I want to be a king? You know, I want him to be the king. Amen. So, and, and is that basically saying that we're not good enough to to, to be what the early people hoped and thought and were promised through the revelations given to Joseph, you know? <laughs> yeah. So uh, how and when did uh, music come into your life and how did it soothe your soul with all that? So let's see. Uh, so I always loved music. Could I took piano lessons, hated it when I was eight. Um, I would say... That as an 11 year old, I started listening to the radio and loved the, the you know, the countdown at night. I'd record it on my boombox um, and I'd buy music. I just buy a lot of music. And at age uh, 16, I had a friend that could play the piano and I'd sit down and try to figure out how to play. And new age piano music was really popular at the time. George Winston, Yanni, and uh, Yanni would flip his hair back and all the women would go, oh. So I was like, I got to grow my hair like Yanni and play some cool arpeggio notes. Maybe I'll get a girlfriend or something. Uh, so I loved all that music and uh, I just couldn't figure it out how to do it. But then my friend Dave uh, died in a car accident and he's the one that would play all the time. So that led me to my parents' piano. I just sat there trying to figure out life. But you see, I'd been born with only half a heart. I had surgery day one. Um, and a lot of my life was evolved out of that there was a purpose that I was alive. And President Howard W. Hunter, who I loved, and there's a guy who constantly preached Jesus. And he gave me a blessing. And in the blessing, told my parents I'd live to be a man, which, you know, we're still waiting for that to happen. And 
I survived that surgery. So growing up, it was, you got blessed by an apostle. You're here for a reason. Keep the commandments and you'll prosper in the land. The famous Book of Mormon scripture and the prosperity basically meant health and wellness. Uh, we never associated that with finance, like Joel Osteen or some of these other prosperity gospel guys. Um, it's more about you were born with a purpose. And I love that because that's, you know, that's, that's something that later in life, uh, when I met my wife who worked for Rick Warren, who wrote Purpose Driven Life, it resonated with me a great deal that we have a purpose led. I think purpose led over purpose driven, purpose led, uh, because we want to be led. We don't want to be driven. Um, so I basically just started playing and playing and playing and playing and got a job in the Joseph Smith Memorial Building and at the restaurant in the Nordstrom's. People asked me if I had a CD. I made Sign of Affection and then was asked to make the Christmas box by Richard Paul Evans that led to doing the hymns. And the hymns started just like everyone that was going on a mission bought the hymns. And I, it was beyond my control. I just remember going to Desert Book and saying, what do people want? And they said, well, they want hymns. So I just made an album called it Hymns. And that's what started selling. And then the church started playing the music. The LDS church started playing the music on their temple grounds. And uh, it just kind of became synonymous with the mission life and people that are trying to get closer to the Lord during the week. Um, but I noticed a trend when the internet happened that majority of the people that were buying the music were not and did not know anything about Mormonism. So I felt it like I felt like I had a responsibility to use music as a teaching tool to bring people to Jesus. That was the agenda, not to the church. Bring them to Jesus first. And then he'll lead them where they need to go as far as church. Yeah, we, we talked a little bit before we started recording that I I didn't immediately recognize your name. I'm probably insulting Brianna because she's a huge fangirl of your work. But uh, I didn't remember your name immediately, but I was like, man, that sounds familiar, though. And, I, and you know, I, I listen to your album all the time on my mission. I even remember listening to it at the MTC doing laundry <laughs> in the little laundromat they have at the MTC. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, you, it's like every missionary knows your that that album. So let me ask you guys, how did you like how did you like your mission experience, Matthew? I mean, it was it was great. Um, you know, I won't lie, it was probably the hardest time of my life at that point, just because uh, it was it was just difficult. I wasn't very apt at learning the language. Like uh, apparently, people told me I could speak okay, but literally when they would talk to me in French, it was just a bunch of gibberish. You know, French is a very smooth flowing language and it's, it was hard for me to parse out the words. Yeah. So I struck, I struggled for at least six months to like, you know, I could pick out one word here or there. I would hear them say daughter or sister. And I'd be like, Oh, sister, like, you know, do you know about our church? We love families, that kind of thing. So it was a struggle. And, and, and you know, like with companions, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, it's a, it's a different experience living with someone all the time and getting along with people with different personalities. But I feel like I, I mean, everybody will, will agree usually when they talk about their missions is you grow a lot, you learn more about yourself and about how to be, you know, independent and how to yeah. be assertive and deal with tough situations and turn to God when you need that support. So, I mean, I, I have no, you know, negative feelings about my mission. There was hard times, but I feel like God used that for, to, to, yeah. for his purposes. I love that. So true. So true. So, and, and did anybody else want to talk about their mission experiences or? If Paul's interested. Yeah, I am, Paul. Yeah, so I, 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 I love my mission as well. You were in um, an amazing area. I mean, I. Both yeah, I mean, Budapest is beautiful. I spent most of my mission there. Um, I did have a few, a couple of stints outside of Budapest, one in a city uh, called Nidacaza, which is in northeastern Hungary. 
and then one in in what may rival Budapest as the most beautiful city. It's it's called Seged. Uh, they call it the Sunrise City. It's beautiful in southern Hungary, right on kind of right on the border. Um, and uh, you know, I, I really came to love the Hungarian people. You know, they've been through uh, a lot in their history uh, in terms of you know being subjugated to to other peoples um, from you know when uh, when uh, the Turks came in uh, in the in the 15th century uh, and kind of tried to overrun Europe. You know, Hungary was kind of right on the front lines there. There's a there's a book uh, about a battle at, at the castle Eger there in Hungary that uh, is fascinating called um, uh, what is it in English? Uh, I can't remember the English title. It's Egrici Lagok in, in Hungarian. It's uh, the stars of Eger. Um, but yeah, and then you know, of course, after that you've got the Austro-Hungarian empire where the Hungarians were really kind of the, the stepchildren in that empire. And then, you know, communism with, with Russia after world war II. So, I mean, they've been as a people, they've just been through so much. And, and I really uh, identified with that when I was there with them and, and, and really learned to love them because those experiences uh, have kind of a long cultural memory uh, in Hungary. And so, you know, you see a lot of, when I was there, you saw, saw a lot of uh, older people who had been through uh, the communist era and uh, the 1956 revolution that they where they hoped they were going to gain regain their freedom and they didn't. Um, you know, there, there were a lot of people, elderly people, who were uh, atheists and bitter towards God, and so it was a it was a very interesting interesting mission to be there. Uh, but I, I'm like Matthew, you know, it, it was um, it was something that God used within my life to. Uh, help bring me to Christ. Um, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't uh, uh, really a follower uh, in in the way that we should be when I was a teenager. And, and, you know, God really used my mission to, to bring me to that place. So that's great. The, uh, my wife is Slovenian. So I've been over to Hungary quite a bit and I did a fireside probably about three years ago to the stake there in Hungary. And that was a, that was a cool experience. Good people. Mm-hmm. Really yeah, good for people. sure. Yeah. What about you, Mr. Pib? How was your mission? Oh man, my mission was fantastic. You know, Californian, it took a while to learn the language. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I met a lot of great people there. I was like um, super shy when I went out on my missions. So I'm just like, I don't know what I'm doing to myself. Like, I'm a huge introvert and I was like, I don't even like talking to people, but I kind of, I'm kind of the older brother is what I would relate to um, for sure. So, I mean, I liked the structure and all the rules and and all that stuff. It worked out really well for me. And uh, by the end of it, I just, I really liked it. I didn't want to go home. And I mean, I spent probably four or five years having these vivid dreams that I was able to go back and I would wake up and be like, oh, I'm not on my mission anymore. So I, I loved every minute of it. Um, it was, it was great. It was like an adventure, you know, like, oh my gosh, I'm out on my own and, and doing all this crazy stuff. And I liked having, uh, you know, deep theological discussions with people and, and making those, those connections. And, you know, something that I really missed when I came home because you just don't have that same opportunity as a post missionary anymore. True. True. The, uh, it's interesting. You mentioned the dreams, because I think everybody that I've ever met has these reoccurring dreams that they're back on their mission or they have to go again. You know, it's like being back in school. You have those dreams of I'm back in elementary school and I can't open or 
middle school and I can't open my locker. I can't remember the combination. And then you have these dreams where it's like you're a missionary and you're like, oh, good. I'm going to go do it right this time. Yes. You know, I won't have a blockbuster card. I won't put the anyways, I won't tell you all this stuff, but stuff you do in California, you know, look for dirt roads to drive your Toyota Corolla on because uh, you've already tracked the entire area twice. Oh, yeah. So that's great. The, the reason I liked it is because you could study the gospel and, and you didn't have to focus on a language. You know, all my brothers speak Spanish. They all serve Spanish speaking. And my brother-in-laws all serve missions and speak a language. I never did. I never did. So it's like, but I was able to study church history. And ironically, our mission president was the manager of church curriculum in the 90s. He worked very closely with Bruce R. McConkie and Joseph Fielding Smith early on. And he's the one that wrote church history in the fullness of times. And I loved him because I learned the narrative in such a powerful way that when you start to deconstruct the narrative later because of the Joseph Smith papers themselves, you know, they reveal so much and people know that they know no one's going to read the papers. So publish them, put them out. There's only a couple guys that are going to, and women that are going to be upset, throw tantrums and leave. So, so, but it's interesting because it's all there. And he was such a, man, he was such a scriptorian that when we got to be zone of the month, he would sit us down and unlock the book of Revelation for us based on what Joseph Smith, Joseph Fielding Smith, Bruce R. McConkie, uh, some of these other guys, uh, very popular, um, you know, because you kind of have two dynamics in Mormonism. You have the two different ideas and philosophies of church. You have the Talmages and you have the, the well, I want to say the B.H. Roberts and the, and the Heber J. Grants. Um, totally different. Totally different. The Joseph F. Smiths, Joseph Fielding Smiths, and the uh, Talmages, the the Irings, the you know, the intellectual people that are, are are questioning things primarily because they are recognizing from their colleagues that there's problems with some things, and they're they're concerned because they're and to me that's like if you have B. H. Roberts go and call this emergency meeting with the. The, the first presidency about some of the problems that his colleagues at these prestigious Ivy League schools who are studying, you know, uh, archaeology, uh, anthropology, evolution, all these sciences that are considered taboo in that time period of Christianity, for him to go and call this emergency meeting, uh, and do you guys know which one I'm talking about? The emergency meeting in, in uh, 1921? Yeah, he he wrote uh, his his book that, about problems with the Book of Mormon, and and he presented that to the 12, right, basically? Yeah, yeah. So basically, he, he you know, he, he was one of the first PhDs out of Utah. He had to, um, he had to get permission, you have to get permission from the first presidency in Corbin's 12 to go to an Ivy League school back then. And it makes sense because we can't look at history through our lens today. We can't. So back then, the Utahns were still afraid of the big world out there because all the stories of the killings, the violence, um, and there was a lot of problems. Um, people just crossing the plains had problems. Um, even non-members crossing the plains <laughs> had problems. It was just a wild time, you know, it was like Deadwood. It was like a, a scene out of Deadwood. It was, it was just, it was not the way we tend to look at it and think about it. You know, the stories of these cute houses with white picket fences. It was the Wild West, you know? There's a lot of fear 
So B.H. Roberts pretty much was the first to go out. He gets his PhD and he comes back and all of his buddies who he's given a Book of Mormon to start to go, wait a second. The sciences are basically telling us that there's, you know, there's no horses, there's no, none of these vegetables, this, 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 and this. And how did the Indians come up with over a thousand different dialects in such a short period of time? If, you know, and, and so you start to see this major shift in 1921. You start to see a law firm uh, come about to protect the church. And then in the 80s, when uh, B.H. Roberts' writings were able to finally come forward because the family um, sued and was able to get those, um, his writings came out and pointed out a lot of these challenges and problems. But by then, they'd done such a good job of preparing the church to just kind of ignore all that stuff and really reinforce the narrative of the first vision and how the Book of Mormon was come about. But 1985, you know, Mark Hoffman... Um, all these writings started to come forward um, out of obscurity. And uh, the intellectuals saw it as a serious problem. They really tried to, to help the church understand these issues. Um, President Hinckley was deceived by Mark Hoffman. Ironically, I taught Mark Hoffman's kids. I was a young men's president over his son and helped get him on a mission to Germany. Um, so I knew the family. And uh, my father was involved in the the story. I mean, he was reporting the story. And I remember going back to Kirtland with my family in Nauvoo. And my dad, as a journalist, was telling the RLDS church that the Salamander letter was a fraud. That church was using the Salamander letter, which basically said that Joseph Smith's son would become the prophet. And there's actually, it's a fact, it's a historical fact that Joseph Fielding Smith, um, his cousin, Joseph Smith III, you know, they got into all those arguments in the 1880s over polygamy because Joseph Smith's son was told by Emma that there was no polygamy. So he set out to try to defend his father's legacy because even his father in that famous discourse told everybody in 1843 there was no polygamy. He was doing none of that. And so Joseph, you, you got to get into Joseph Fielding or Joseph Smith III's mindset as a boy. He's six years old. He's taken to Liberty Jail. It's wintertime. He's trying to understand why his dad's in jail. He's told that his cousin, who's a newborn baby, Joseph Fielding Smith, had also been taken to the, the jail by his mother, Mary, and blessed by Hiram. And then Lyman White, who was in the jail with Joseph um, and all the guys, said that when they brought Joseph's son, Joseph III, that they laid hands on him. And Joseph III did pronounce him to be the the heir to like Nephi and Le like Lehi and Nephi. Uh, Abraham and Isaac, to be the next prophet of the church. And then fast forward when he's 11 years old in a red brick store, Lyman White again records, and John Taylor was there. Brigham Young was not in any of this. Um, reports, Sidney Rigdon was, reported that his son got a second blessing, a double confirmation that he would become the president of the church. So he's 11 years old and he knows this. And then his father goes off and gets killed. And to the best of his knowledge, as an 11-year-old, he never sees any polygamy. He never sees any polyandry. Most in Nauvoo never did. They kept it under wraps until Brigham Young publicly announced the revelation, I think like five or six years later. Um, and so you have all these challenges with, you know, and I've always tried to look at uh, life through other people's lens of what they have experienced, what they're feeling. And I have such compassion for Joseph's Smith's son, uh, because he was told 
so many lies. And his mother tried to protect him, tried to tried to even preserve her husband, her ex-husband's legacy by saying there's no polygamy. And she knew. Um, and so he goes out to Utah, Joseph III, as the prophet of the reorganized church and starts telling people that he, you know, that his there is no polygamy. And Joseph Fielding Smith goes out and interviews 40 to 45 women that were married to the prophet Joseph Smith that are at the time now married to Brigham Young and gets sworn affidavits that they were. So can you imagine being Joseph Fielding, Joseph Smith's son, hearing that, finally realizing his father is not who he was, but a mystery, and goes back to Nauvoo and eventually to Independence, Missouri, um, and dies. I mean, it's tragic. It's, it's so tragic. And those are the stories that affect me um, in such a profound way that I'm like, something's not right here. Mm. But it's in every organized religion. Um, there are problems in You can take any religion and, you know, which is why the Savior, um, I believe, that's why he was a, he, he came and fulfilled the need for the laws and the prophets because he had given them so many opportunities with prophets, with priests. You know, they had, uh, as uh, Paul talks about in Hebrews 7, talks about the Melchizedek and the priesthood and the, and the need for the Aaronic priesthood and how they've God tried with these people and these people kept failing and failing and failing and failing and failing. Finally, he sends Christ to fulfill the law and to usher in the dispensation of grace to where anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ is now part of the church. And we are members of one of the largest churches in the world, 3 billion Christians. And when we we, we talk about, you know, oh, what about the gathering? What about this? And that? I mean, the gathering's happening all the time. It's daily. Christ comes and encounters people and brings them in like fish. And the church is growing and growing and getting bigger and bigger. And ironically, I believe a lot of Latter-day Saints are part of that church. They don't even know it. Yeah, I, I tend to. All this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, that's good. Good stuff. And I, I, I tend to agree with you on that. Like I, um, when we did my, the episodes that are my story, um, Matthew asked me whether I thought I was a Christian before I left the LDS church or after. And if I, if I look back at my life and, and kind of chart where, where I believe God was active in, in working in my life, um, there's, there's no question that I think I was, um, born again before I left the LDS church. Um, I think I had reached that point of, of realizing my helplessness without Jesus. And so I, you know, I placed my, my point of being born again before I left. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think there are a lot of Latter-day Saints who are born again Christians. They have a because you know them by the fruits, you know them by the fruits. They are the most Christ-like and they know that Jesus is the only way and that he's provided enough. It's enough. They're not even worried about all that other stuff because they're so sure in their knowledge of Christ because he's encountered them and picked them up. And And I, I believe that he keeps people where they need to be for certain reasons, which is why he probably plucked you out long before to, to tutor you, to mentor you, to guide you to where you're able to be, you know, an asset for him with all the talents you've been given, the gifts you've been given to bring even more people to Christ. Yeah. Amen. God's, God's sovereignty is, uh, is, uh, supreme. Uh, and I, I recognize that in my life. So, yeah. So it's, it's actually a question that people ask me a lot too, you know, they'll just, they'll, uh, 
they'll corner me and, and say, hey, I mean, do you believe Mormons are, are Christian? And that's the tough question there. And it's like, look, uh, it's not about what religion you're in. And so it's not for me to say it's it's about your relationship with Christ and whether you trust him fully for your salvation, you know, but, you know, anybody, anybody could be. And I, I agree with you, uh, Paul, that a lot of Latter-day Saints are born again Christians. Um, I did want to kind of jump in here. You kind of talked about your, your mission a little bit. Um, what was life like for you when you came off of your mission, uh, you know, with, with marriage and family and callings and things like that? Um, I was all in. I loved it. I loved, um, I was probably the biggest advocate you could be for the church. And I devoted my entire life to it. You know, I had surgery as that infant at a four, at age 13, I almost died. You know, I've had a lot of near death experiences. I've known Christ since I was 13 because I, I, I was obsessed with the afterlife because I was going to go there any, any day now with this bad heart. So I, I, I could feel him and his presence and his love around me. And when I had to go back a year later for reconstructive surgery, there he was again, right there in that moment, him. It wasn't the father. It wasn't, it was him. And I could feel it. And I would have dreams and I would, um, I used to do these, you know, I came back from my mission and I had to go get a pacemaker replaced because the battery was dead. <laughs> and so I remember going to the hospital and I was on the on the operating table and they were trying to bring me back from just a simple procedure, a heart cath, checking my heart pressure, everything. And I started suffocating and I couldn't breathe. And I thought I was dying. And I, I remember being, I was being, I was bagged and they were bagging me. And it was in that moment that I, my mind went right to the cross and I saw Christ standing, not on a platform, but he had his legs on the sides of the of the cross with the nail going through his ankle, through the wood, out to the other side with a, a something screwed onto his feet. So he's bolted in and then he had, um, his, he was up here with some rope. There was a nail in his wrist and one in his hand. Um, and for me, that was like, I, in that moment, I, 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 he was suffocating. He was suffocating and I was suffocating. And I was trying to figure out the whole scenario, the whole purpose of life. And I knew that if Christ suffered and hung on, that he wanted me to hang on to. And so I kept working with the medic um, and they told me it was two hours of breathing exercises until I finally came out, came back from the dead, really. And it was because of Christ and the vision of the cross. So I've always, from that day forward, seen the cross as extremely valuable versus the garden. And I know the garden is essential and important. And we weren't there. We don't know if that is where the process began, but it, it's where he started the prayer to the father and then up back up on the cross. So point is, I've had that relationship with him early on and everything after my mission was, I just wanted, I just wanted to help people have their hearts healed I want to make music as a resource for God so Jesus can come in and heal them. I just happened to be a member of the Latter-day Saint Church, and I, I'd never really been outside of Utah. I, didn't, I hadn't traveled and seen things that were so spiritual and significant to make me go, oh, we don't have a monopoly on the gifts of the Spirit. We don't have a monopoly on love. 
we don't have a monopoly on so many things. It's not until I started to travel that my eyes began to, you know, the Paul talks about the, the veil over our eyes. You know, up until then, I had, every time I heard the gospel, I had a veil over my face, as the New Testament says. But when it came to Christ, the veil was gone. Like, I knew Christ. Um, so I just began, you know, just using music to, and I, I think I, and then I got asked to do firesides because of my heart problem. I never sought that out. Um, and I probably have spoken to, if you add up the, the audience, probably 10 million Latter-day Saints. Some of those people probably heard it again and again and again. But I would suspect about 10 million people that are Latter-day Saint uh, heard one of my firesides. And it was usually all about how Christ heals our hearts. You didn't ever, um, you didn't ever travel with Richard Paul Evans doing firesides, did you? I did early on with Rick because he'd asked me to write music for his book, The Christmas Box. Okay. I so, saw him, the reason I asked, I saw him give a fireside here in Cincinnati. Gosh, it was probably 2007 or eight time frame. but you, you probably weren't with him then. No. I, I remember coming through Cincinnati uh, with Richard. I can't remember when it was, okay. but I think it was like 98, 97. Yeah. That was before I got here. Okay. Before the millennium. Yeah. So yeah, Richard was my mentor for advertising and marketing. Um, and he was the one that gave me that opportunity to do that album where I had a couple minutes to go in and record uh, the hymns record. I was, I was going to jump in there uh, real quick too. Um, just you talking about, about the cross. It really resonated with me because uh, I guess kind of the point of, of where I transitioned was where I saw the power of the cross myself. And I, I realized that the cross was a temple basically, you know, that, that Christ was on there vicariously on my behalf. And, um, and I actually was really touched kind of reading about your, your story, getting a heart transplant and, and what that was like for you. And it, it kind of drew a parallel to the gospel for me. And I just you know, throw this out there and I'd like your thoughts on it, but um, kind of thinking about how Christ in a way is, is our donor um, you know, that he, he went there and he gave us his, his righteousness. And as long as we're trying to perfect ourselves, it's kind of like a re reparative surgery for a problem. That's just not really going away. But then when we accept Christ's grace, it's, it's like, he's donated that, that new heart to us spiritually. Um, and I just hadn't drawn that parallel until I was reading that, uh, that story. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful that it, that you see that because when I was waiting for the transplant, um, it was a difficult time. I had a three-year-old, you know, I married a girl who I'd known since I was in high school and we were very close. Um, but it was very hard on our marriage, not just the transplant, but we'd had a lot of miscarriages and problems. And we were the two type of Latter-day Saints where it's like two positive magnets. <laughs> it's like, it, it, we kept just and, but we were like best friends, but we just couldn't like be a great married couple. Um, and so then when we went through the transplant, she thought I was going to die and she's a nurse. So she seriously thought like, oh, you're going to die. Her mom had died when she was little. So I don't hold that against her. It was more of, I needed someone to tell me you're going to be okay. But she was a realist, you know, and I had a pick line and she would change my bandages. And it was a beautiful experience the two of us had and then our daughter sacred experience but when i was waiting for my transplant my younger brother who served his mission in spain 
came home from his mission and said, uh, I think I'm done. I think the Mormon church is the beginning of the Catholic church. And I've been in Spain and I've seen what happens and families fall apart. And I, I, anyways, he had all these other intellectual challenges. He was an ecological geneticist. Um, and at the time, the church was kind of against evolution, even though we know majority of the 12 agree with evolution um, and the whole concept of all that stuff. And I think it fits within Christianity. There's still a lot of Christians that don't. Um, but uh, that's topics that are kind of irrelevant to how to be a good person. Um, and so I go through this thing and my brother dies while I'm waiting for my heart. He had a mental breakdown uh, and was killed. So uh, there, were, there was a phone call. The, the day that happened, everyone knew that my father was a journalist. And so I came across the feed on KSL radio that the son of so-and-so had died on my answering machine at home. So people thought it was me. So I heard all these messages on the machine of people giving their condolences to my wife that I had died. So I got to hear what people actually thought of me. Uh, so I, could, I didn't have time to grieve my brother. I just kept going and going and going. Finally, my younger brother, brought, uh, Craig, uh, who is he's a great, hardworking, good man. And he gave me a blessing. And I, I like blessings. I think they're very valid. I don't think it matters what faith you're in. Anytime you pray over someone and put hands on them, it's beautiful. Um, and I think it's acceptable like the widow's might. He basically said in that blessing, because of my organ donor, and we didn't know who that would be, because of him and his sacrifice and the sacrifice his family makes, you're going to be able to live longer. But because of Jesus Christ, who voluntarily laid down his life, all of us will live forever. He's the greatest organ donor, spiritually, physically. And when God says, change your heart, I took that very serious. So not only has my heart been changed literally, but he's been changing it spiritually over the last 15 years. Good observation, because that's, it's totally true. That's what he is. He is a heart changer. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, Paul. Very, very touching and tender memory. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, so I, I came across a, a post of yours on, on your Facebook page recently uh, where you wrote, uh, quote, over the past decade, my life has dramatically shifted away from Mormonism towards Christ. Growing up, I believed in him and knew him because I relied on him desperately with every illness. I give God the credit for guiding my medical team on raising me from the dead temporarily like Lazarus and fixing me through organ donation. Jesus changed my heart literally and began changing my heart spiritually these past few years, end quote. So you've, you've alluded to that journey. What, what has that journey been like? Uh, how did it begin? What, what has God done in your life over the past decade that has brought you to this moment of, of sharing your faith transition publicly? Obviously, transition from tradition to new tradition is not easy. You know, it's like going through divorce. Um, I think it's very, very challenging for people like me who have experienced divorce, who are misfits in a way because we are creatives, it's hard to understand us. And it's hard to, to feel normal within the church because it's such a family-centered thing. And I believe it's the most beautiful organization on the planet. But the blueprint of what they're doing now is something I was waiting for 15 years ago. 
I, you know, I've had, I've been in, I'm still wrapping my mind around it. I, you know, it's more of what Christ does in here and you can't explain it. There's no words. You just have to go where you feel compelled to go. And um, you don't want to necessarily change, but you have to for your own um, survival mentally. Um, Because when I went through the transplant, I never in my wildest dreams thought I would get divorced. And going through that process of divorce, I ended up having this disciplinary council. um, And I was able to use section 42 in my defense. Um, Anyone who has a testimony of Christ, um, you can't get excommunicated for anything. You can't get this or that. And it's tragic because if you know your scriptures, you can control the court and control the outcome, I feel. But those that go in there unaware of the doctrine that was laid down in the defense of the sinner, they just throw them out. One of the things that really threw me off was, I don't know anywhere in the, in, in the Bible where they held a court to get rid of somebody of the church. I, there's nowhere in the New Testament where Jesus says, let's have a council. Not even with Judas. He said, go do what you got to do. He never said, hey, guys, we got to hold a court right now and disfellowship Judas. And then he's going to go and do what we need him to do. Even when Paul, you know, they have all these councils, um, you know, to decide the next uh, one of the brethren or however that's all formed. Um, but there's never a council to, 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 to try the worthiness of an individual, of a child of God. And granted, you have to protect the church because it's a corporate entity from the walls that creep in. You have to publicly say, we don't affiliate with this guy that's leading this, you know. So there's so many different dynamics and philosophy around what to do in those situations. But I found the church court system to not be a righteous act, that it's it, 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 it damages families further, in my opinion, because when the guys you go to church with are not professional therapists, and they're giving you advice based on what they feel is revelation, and you're trusting that, I got to tell you, I got some of the worst advice when I was going through my divorce. I had state presidents tell me they're just learning how to love their wives because their wives have been mean to them. Or, yeah, yeah, you know, life's not easy and you got to fix all this. You can you can fix it. You can fix it. You can fix it. Not once did anyone say, look, the Savior took care of it. And there's he took care of it or he'll take care of it. And in Mormonism, it's more they say he took care of it, but it's he'll take care of it after you do these things that we feel you need to do. There is power in knowing you are redeemed and loved. That is more powerful. And that is the motivation I started to realize that's going to make me want to go through the sanctification process, you know, because the sanctification process is pretty much faith in Jesus Christ, repentance, you know, and and the cycle. You want to be a good person. You want to keep the commandments. You want to love others. You want to be like Christ. There's no motivation. There's very little motivation if it's, you need to do this, this, and this. It's it's like just reversed. It's but because you have exaltation hanging over you, and you might not get the full one hundred percent light bulb. You know, you 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 you're falling short, falling short. 
And then you got guys coming out and making excuses like that's not exactly what they mean. After all you can do, you know, grace after all you can do. The famous Brad Wilcox uh, message. And I love Brad. Brad's fantastic. He's telling everybody about the grace of Christ. And it's a hint. It's a hint of the it's like a 40 percent watt light bulb of what's available when you actually pull your head out and the veil is removed from your eyes and you see Jesus for who he really is, which is. He's on your side. He's on your team. He, he'll give you everything he's got. He doesn't care about that. He just wants you. And he just wants you to want him. Um, so I've had, I've had countless experiences. Uh, it, you know, after, but prior to the transplant, working with Steel and other Christians on the Songs of Praise album, I loved worship music. I just loved it. I know it's redundant. It's, um, I'm in the music business, so I know how music manipulates and a lot of worship music is keywords that we use to sell product. And so you have a lot of Christian artists that create these experiences with their pastors that are very beautiful rides that you can take and you can feel the love of God. But in the long term, one of the challenges I have right now with Christianity is when crap hits the fan, who's coming to your rescue? It's great we can go to all these wonderful Christian churches and worship and feel alive. But when crap hits the fan, um, who comes to your rescue? So that's the kind of Christianity that Mormonism has correct. That's what that's what boggles my mind is the quality of care. You know, unless you're unless you're uh, homosexual or, you know, we're getting better at that. Uh, Latter-day Saints. But, uh, you know, I haven't been in enough churches or plugged in enough to see that kind of care that the pioneer system created. And just looking after each other and helping each other, um, and that—that's the gospel during the week. Yeah. So unless you guys know of a Christian church out there that comes to you during the week, um, that's one of the things I think a lot of Mormons leave uh, struggle with is that nobody's knocking on their door. Yeah, I think I think there's some truth in there. Um, I, thankfully, I, I have experienced some some. Uh, love like that from the Christian church we attend. Um, shortly after we left, uh, you know, I, I always tell a story. There's a friend of mine, Jason Pace, and he's he's encouraged uh, encouraged me in in bringing this podcast to fruition. Um, but the first time I walked into, you know, our Christian church and kind of got to know people, um, I remember going down to pick up my daughter from from children's church, and he was down there, uh, you know, checking children out and. Uh, he saw me, you know, for the first time that, that he had seen me since uh, we had met at a Wednesday night Bible study. And I mean, he just came up to me and, you know, gave me the biggest hug. And I, I'm, I'm a big guy. I'm six foot seven. And Jason, Jason's probably all of five ten, maybe. So it probably looked really funny, but um, just that embrace from, from a brother in Christ was, was amazing. And then, you know, my wife um, had a health issue uh, not long after that. And, uh, Jason's wife and some others uh, did like did like Latter Day Saints did. They 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 signed up uh, for a meal uh, meal plan for bringing meals to to us for a week. And um, so I've seen that kind of thing go on. My father in law uh, passed away last year. We're coming up on a year uh, on November twenty third. Um, he battled cancer for for four years. Um, and uh, I, I saw there my mother in law's Baptist church rally around her both during his illness and. And uh, and afterwards, so um, it's it's there. Uh, but but you're right. There's that's something about uh, about the Latter Day Saint faith that is beautiful. It's uh, 
And I've had, I've had those same experiences of what you're talking about, where, you know, you do have your community of friends within the churches and the support, but when you show up to church, it's always um, welcome if you're here for the first time and they spend 15 minutes doing the same thing every week. And I get that. I get that. Um, There's just this, I don't, I think, I think the thing with the Latter-day Saint system is I think our ancestors and our people are just really good. They're just good people. Everything they'd been through, everything they'd gone through, they just knew how to rely on each other. And that kind of tradition got passed down and more organized by the women of looking after each other. Obviously, Relief Society in the beginning was to conceal gossip, uh, um, but it evolved into this amazing organization. So the people, uh, the people in the way they respond to neighbors, for the most part, for the most part, are, are some of the most Christ-like on the planet. And, and I can't, even though I have a problem with the narrative that uh, continues to be propelled, um, that most priesthood recognize is falling apart and needs to be restructured. Um, the vast majority of what's happening is I, and I've talked to a lot of Christian friends. I don't know if you guys have had these same conversations, but we see the Latter-day Saints moving more towards Christianity in the sense that God knows the hearts of the people. God knows the hearts of that machine and what is possible. And I'm not a pessimist. I'm an optimist. I try to think like, how is he going to use this for the greater good, for his purposes? You know, everything on the planet he uses for his glory, his purpose, his value uh, to bring people to him. Um, and churches need to come together right now because, I mean, it's it's getting pretty crazy out there. And it's beautiful to see the gathering in the, you know, this gospel dispensation of grace of churches starting to work together, even Latter-day Saints. And, you know, years ago, the Catholics weren't considered Christian. And, um, but see, I'm coming to it, you guys, from the music world. So I'm in the Gospel Music Association. So there's poets and prophets. Poets are the guys that are down with the people and going through a lot of crap. And then we write about it. And the prophets pick up on it because the people are singing the songs. And the prophets go and pray and get the information. You know, Martin Luther King, uh, Abraham Lincoln. These are prophets. These are people that have done incredible things to change society for the better with Christ in their heart and Christ motivating it all. Um, So I just see so many churches, you know, when we get together at the Gospel Music Association events or the award show, uh, the one I was at last last year, um, all the artists are like, it's so good. Every, we got Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterian, Catholics, and a Latter-day Saint. That was me. And uh, this guy and that guy and this woman and that. And it was like, we are the world Christians. And we never once said, well, your doctrine and your doctrine. And it was like, let's focus on the big picture of just being nice to each other, loving each other. Um, the two great commandments. Because didn't Paul say, whosoever loves has fulfilled the law? He echoed what Jesus was saying. So really, it just comes down to for us to emulate the Savior and truly be sanctified. We just need to love everyone unconditionally and judge nobody. So. Yeah, it's, it's interesting when, especially with, like you said, with the world as it is nowadays, there are a lot of social issues going on that people are very aware of. It's at the forefront of, of all the media. And I mean, right now we've got the, you know, the lockdown and everything is going on. 
And it, I, I think the doctrine is, I personally think the doctrine is important. We can't just put it, push it all under the rug, right? And say, you know, we're all the same. But at the same time, we can still stand with people despite our disagreements and say, here's a common cause that we can all overcome. Here's our common goal that we can all work towards. And I think, and I agree with you that I think that's, I think it's important that on some, that on a level, even, even despite our disagreements, we can all come together and for, for the good of society. And especially now that we see there's a lot of push to remove any kind of religion from the public sphere, from politics, from the educational system, that I think there's, there is some value there in saying, in coming together and saying, we, despite our differences, we still agree on many things in terms of morality, in terms of, you know, um, how we should teach our children and raise them into our belief system. So, but, uh, but yeah, I'm kind of rambling now, but. <laughs> no, I, I agree with you, Matthew. Um, the thing that makes me nervous is what's called the prosperity gospel. And you guys have probably seen the documentary on Netflix, uh, Matthew Chandler, one of the reverends and a bunch of other guys putting this together. Uh, it's a little pessimistic, but at the same time, it reveals why it's so important to just focus on those two commandments, love God and love others. Cause that is the whole reason Christ, at least through my research and study and opinion that's why christ came um was because of love and then to teach us to love everything else is all around getting and helping to do that so that's why the doctrine aspect of it i used to be really concerned about doctrine but it's just a consistent thing through the new testament if you love me keep my commandments what are the two great commandments love god love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And if there's ever a time that everyone's a narcissist, it's now. Galileo would have said the world doesn't revolve, the sun doesn't, the world doesn't revolve around whatever. The world revolves around us. And he would have been correct. Um, love, love just counters everything. I mean, Christ encountered the misfits that people that were obsessed with how things are supposed to be because they read scripture did not understand scripture because they wouldn't treat the Samaritan woman well, no pun intended. And they wouldn't treat the the leper with respect, you know? And granted, Christ can go up and touch a leper and not get leprosy. And the guys are like, what are you doing? Uh, and how'd you do that? You know, and can you make more wine? Um, so every encounter Jesus had was with a, a person who was so different. They were moths. Um, and so for me, that teaches that a lot of the doctrinal stuff is important, but it's when it comes down to how we treat people and who he wants, we have no power over, you know, there's a, there's this, and I know I'm talking a lot, but there's this story I love that explains religion versus God. Um, a group of people go up to the uh, pearly gates and there's Paul and Peter, and they're checking people in as two witnesses you know, hey, show me your signs and people are getting in. But then Paul looks behind him and he's like, Peter, did you let that guy in? Did you let that girl in? And Peter's like, no, did you? Paul's like, no. How are all these people getting into heaven? And so, hey, James, 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 can you take a couple of the guys, Luke, Timothy, Matthew, can you guys walk the premise of heaven and please tell us how everyone's getting in? I think there's a leak, a tunnel. I don't know what they're doing, but they're not supposed to be here. They don't know the signs and tokens and all this stuff. So meanwhile, they walk around the premise. They come back like three years later because it's, it's heaven. I mean, everyone's there. So, and they come back and they're like, you're not going to believe it. We found Jesus. He was on the other side 
throwing people up over into heaven, over the walls. So I love that story because when the apostles are, you know, making lists and the pastors and the priests and priestesses and everybody are going down the checklist, Jesus is sneaking people in. And so I like the analogy because it's just, it's the Jesus I know that I've come to love and understand because there's no orphans in God's kingdom. No one's an outcast. Everyone is welcome to the table. And if they're not at the table, let's go get them. Yeah, I think I think there's definitely a challenge uh, for for us as followers of Jesus to um, to recognize that you know if we if we believe that that the the salvation comes by grace alone, right, through faith alone, and and that that gift of a new heart, that that regeneration comes from God. Um, it's not because of anything we could do to please Him, um, because we're all we're all in need of that that new heart. Um, and if we recognize that, I think there's, there's that, there's a challenge to us, uh, because sometimes we want to say, um, I think God is working there or not working here. Um, and you know, unfortunately we're fallible. We don't know that. Um, if someone would have looked at me, uh, 15 years ago, uh, they might've been certain that, that I was going to be lost forever. Um, you know, I, I, I lost, uh, a, a kind of a conservative orthodox belief in, in Mormonism uh, towards the end of my mission and took a detour through dialogue and Sunstone type Mormonism and, and really thought I would stay there for the rest of my life. Um, and really where that was leading me was uh, towards agnosticism and, and pessimism and, and, and disbelief in just about everything. Um, but God reached down and, and brought me out of that. God reached down and, and, and showed me um, Jesus in a way that was that was clear and, and beautiful. And, and I've talked about that on my my episode uh, of our podcast, you know, the, the dream that I had uh, of Jesus and uh, the way that that dream is connected to us to a particular place uh, that I encountered in, in Budapest. And, um, you know, so I think I think it's a challenge to us not to not to be too dogmatic about where we think God is and isn't working. I have a thought on that too, because so Paul, you were talking about the prosperity gospel, and I tend to think that the the prosperity gospel is probably the biggest threat that Christianity faces from within its own walls. Um, because I mean, Christ said to take up our cross and follow Him, and to me, that's a very different message than than the prosperity gospel, which is you know you name it and you claim it, and God wants you to be wealthy and happy. And it's like, well, Paul was writing these, these letters from prison. And I think that that, that that gospel weakens us as a body of Christ and that it should be called out, you know, not just to say like, oh, you're wrong for the sake of, of saying you're wrong. But I think if it weakens, uh, weakens our, our faith as, as a body of Christ, um, and it's not pointing to what Christ actually taught, that it should be, um, it should be exposed. You know, that's just my my opinion on that. But yeah, I, I do worry about the, the prosperity gospel quite a bit myself. It's very, very popular. And it's the reason the federal government wants to charge churches taxes. Because when you have parishioners sacrificing finances to get their pastor a jet, a nice one, uh, you know, that's there's something weird about that, not right about that. Um, I do like the 10% system that the LDS church has. I think that it's 
I do believe in tithing. I think it's important, but I, I, I think that you don't necessarily have to tithe to a specific, give it all to the church. You can choose organizations that you feel God is working through to tithe to, um, but we should be generous. But yeah, the prosperity gospel is such that it's the pyramid scheme of religion, you know, do this and this and this, and you rise in your prominence and we get carried away. I think uh, in the Latter-day Saint church, you get kind of carried away in that because men love to have a calling, which means they don't have to go home. They don't have to put the kids to bed. They don't have to clean up after the dishes. Why are you looking at me? <laughs> Just kidding. I think there's a lot of women. And one of the main things that's led me away is the treatment of women and the treatment of homosexuals. Um, and that's where, you know, we may have different ideas on things, but I believe God wants everyone to be happy and everybody deserves a covenant relationship because that controls the morality. It also allows people to achieve the full measure of their creation and have joy. Um, so it's tough. I, I, I feel like women are the most powerful, most important creatures on earth and that men are nowhere where they are. And yet men run the world. Um, and in Mormonism, it's tough because early on, women were just, there's so many different stories. They love it, they hate it, they love it, they hate it. You know, um, all of that stuff is just frustrating to even think about and learn about. And then to see that there's no position for women to really lead um, in church is beyond me because Christ surrounded himself with more women than any um, historical book of that time period and before. It was so revolutionary. You know, the first woman to ever experience mortality is Eve. The first to ever experience immortality or witness that is Mary Magdalene. The mother of Jesus gets no respect by a lot of Christians. Um, I just, I'm a, I'm a big believer that until we give women more prominent role in life and in things, that this world is going to continue to go where it's going. There's a lot of evil women, trust me. But at the same time, I mean, yeah. But at the same time, if you know what I'm saying, there's we've suppressed the talents and the gifts of women. And, and I've seen, I don't want to get into my family, but I've seen sacrifices made by women that just breaks my heart, you know? Having the meal ready, having the castle ready. I mean, gosh, there's enough money. Cater it, guys. Let your women off the hook. Cater it or do something. Get involved. Do I don't know. But that's that's. I mean, that's just a minor thing compared to some of the other frustrating things I see. Were there any doubts during your transition at all? Um, what kind of doubts? Like that the church may still be the church. Like wondering if it would be worth it leaving. You know, I just I baptized my daughter about four months ago. That was the last act. Um, I had to baptize her three times because I did it wrong. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back because that's not the Jesus I know. He doesn't look for failure. He looks for the heart of what's happening. So when you have to get to the technicalities of the gospel, it's like, it's so absurd, so ridiculous, such patriarchal intrusiveness that I just, I can't keep supporting that behavior. 
And yet I love the person who had me do that with all my heart. And the biggest thing, obviously, when you leave is people, you're more worried about people. You know, you're worried about the feelings of your parents, family. And I built a whole career where there's Latter-day Saints that have strengthened their testimonies of the prophet and of everything because of the music. So I have a responsibility. And that's why the post that I did was carefully thought out because I, I don't, I, I, I still believe the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints is evolving into where Jesus wants it to go. Um, I, I haven't given up on that church as not a Christian church. I believe they are a Christian church. I believe they're a, mono, I don't know how to say it, but a misogynistic church. And when we repent, the church needs to repent from the polygamy, the palandry. It needs to uh, set the record straight with the narrative about Joseph. Because you have so many churches that have been planted on the grounds of Christ and Christianity. I feel that church is redeemable in allowing Christ to be the center instead of controlling what the center is, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, it makes it makes perfect sense. And what you were just talking about with, with that baptism, too. I mean, baptism is the very symbol of, of resurrection and us being, you know, having this new life. And then them putting technicalities on that is just basically saying that you have to be perfect in order to to be born again. And yeah, that's that's crazy. The worthy the worthiness, are you worthy to go to the temple? Are you worthy to bless the sacrament? Are you nobody is. There's only one good being, and that's Jesus Christ. Absolutely. <laughs> say we're not worthy undervalues his sacrifice and entire purpose. Uh so and to say someone's not going to go to heaven, you just basically drove another nail into him. Everybody qualifies and Jesus will literally love the hell out of them. All this analogy of fire and brimstone, fire is a purifier. There's a great song from Leland, uh, his new worship record. He says that God is turning things to gold and this fire, this hell, damnation, everything in the book of Revelation, you know, a lot of Christians believe it is a literal place. I believe it's a process of love. When someone is loving you so much, eventually you're going to give in and you're going to accept that love. You're going to take that love and you're going to go, oh my gosh, why do you love me so much? And through this whole process of eternity and where we're going, it's going to be these beautiful encounters of Jesus putting his arms around us and saying, you are amazing. You are wonderful. You are incredible. I love you. Thank you for being here. What do you mean so-and-so doesn't like you? Hey, so-and-so, get over here. Let's have a group hug. You know, so it, for me, everyone is redeemable. And we see time through this like, well, everyone has to get to the top of the mountain at the same time. No, please. It's a process. Well, you don't want, I remember climbing Mount Olympus after my transplant. I said, let's go climb a mountain. I was the last one. People kept, got, they got to the top. I had a heart transplant. So it's like, I got to, I got to get up there. Everyone was waiting for me to get up there. They all wanted me. Some of the kids went up two or three times. They'd already experienced what's up there. And they come down and they're like, you got to come up. The view is amazing. But you know, I was enjoying my time walking up with my father. And I almost didn't want to get to the top because I was enjoying the time with my father, the walk. And then we got to a point where it was so hard. I couldn't get up any further. 
he grabs my hand and he pulls me up. So I went through that refiner's fire of never being able to hike because I wasn't worthy to hike because I didn't qualify because I had a bad heart to where all of a sudden I got a new heart and I could ascend that mountain, not as fast as some people, but my father was there and my father grabbed me. My father took my hand. My father stayed with me and we got to the top together and everyone was up there. So that's how I see like this whole process of being born to all the beautiful things God wants to do for his story. And, you know, we're pages on that story. Yeah, there's definitely some beautiful, beautiful imagery within the pages of the Bible in terms of, um, you know, God restoring Eden um, in the end. Um, and, you know, one of one of the challenges as a as a former Latter-day Saint um, in trying to uh, preach the gospel to Latter-day Saints is that, as you've noted there for Latter-day Saints, there are a lot of distinctives. Right. Joseph Smith is a distinctive. The Book of Mormon is a distinctive the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, um, the whole idea of exaltation, temples. Um, there's there's a lot, just a lot of distinctives that uh, Latter-day Saints own and resonate with, um, especially if they're ra- born and raised Latter-day Saints. Um, and what I found when I came out and and became a member of, of a Christian denomination, um, the one I belong to is a, it's an independent, they're part of the uh, independent Christian churches, uh, slash churches of Christ. Um, so that's the Alexander Campbell movement. If you're familiar with that with, with that name from Mormon history, I read Alexander Campbell's book. Yeah. So, um, that's yeah, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of early Latter-day Saints, Parley P. Pratt, uh, among others came from that Campbellite movement. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, interplay between, um, the Campbellite movement and, uh, early Latter-day Saint teaching, um, and for that reason, for that reason, among um, some Christians, uh, members of, of denominations that are that are that have their history in, in the Campbellite movement uh, are kind of viewed as as outcasts um, for various doctrinal positions that that are generally taken within within that tradition. And so, I, I attended a seminary uh, and got a, a master's of divinity degree uh, from a from Cincinnati Christian University, which was associated with. Um, with uh, the independent Christian churches. And um, so I, I definitely, you know, studied the history there and, I, and I've seen that there's, there's certainly distinctives there as well. And one thing that I noticed um, in, you know, diving into Facebook groups that are, that are related to my, my own particular Christian denomination is that there are people there who can get really hung up on distinctives and um, that can be challenging uh, within the Christian faith. Um, one of the things that 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 we share as as the three of us is that uh, none of us belong to the same uh, Christian tradition, right? Okay. Uh, I'm I'm a Campbellite. Well, I, I wouldn't even say I'm a Campbellite. I'm I'm a Christian, right? Um, but Matthew is a Reformed Baptist. Michael is something. <laughs> He's Mr. Pib. <laughs> He's Mr. Pib, but um. You know, we, 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 we have these conversations on our podcast and we don't always agree on everything yeah. uh, doctrinally, but what we're, what we're united on is, is Christ, right? Christ saves and Christ alone saves. And um, that, that allows us to have a level of unity that I think there's, there's room for that within, within uh, broader Christianity. And, and you've touched on Paul a couple of times uh, during our discussions tonight, um, that uh, in various ways that 
that there's a big, big opportunity. And I, and I agree with it. There's a huge opportunity within Christian, Christianity in general for discipleship within churches. And by discipleship, I don't mean, because a lot of times within churches, discipleship means um, kind of indoctrinating people in our, in our distinctives, right? And what I mean by discipleship is there's a huge opportunity to teach people the gospel, which is all of us are helpless without Christ. And therefore, let's go out and bring others to Christ, right? Yeah. And so... I think that the uh, church is doing a good job of having people leave on its own. Uh, but I think secondly, I'm with you. When people leave any particular faith, they do become agnostic because they've been let down and they did everything that they were told to do. And, you know, uh, a good friend of mine who is actually the author of The Broken Miracle, J.D. Neto, uh, he's from Brazil. He belonged to this massive mega church in Brazil, um, but he has these different ideas. And so they threw him under the bus. Um, he's the one that's been writing uh, my story. Um, and uh, we've had so many discussions in writing this book because, because religion plays such a role in everyone's lives, whether they want to admit it or not. And there's so many people that have been heartbroken because of the way they've been treated within a church. And I think we have to recognize that no church is perfect and people are perfect. And that's where if you're a Christian, I think the biggest, I think it's a harder responsibility to be the Christian that oversees the benefit of the doubt of others and sees the value in others the way Christ actually did, because he approached those that were not of the faith, those that were not doing what, I mean, Peter used to question him all the time. You know, what are you doing? You know, uh, and even Timothy to Paul and Luke to Paul and constantly asking, why are, you guys, why are you giving credence to these people, these people, these people? Even those that were with Jesus were like, what are you doing with these people? And I, I mean, it's so silly because life is too short and we're all in this sandbox together. And he's trying to just say, I made you different. You know, look at all the different flowers. You know, I don't know which flower, I, I posted, which flower is the one and only true flower to give to your wife? You know, uh, nobody could come up with the same flower. Like, well, you're supposed to give roses because of this and this and this. Well, no, you're supposed to give tulips because of this and this and this. No one could even decide. And it's kind of like someone should have just said, oh, that's so beautiful. You want to give your wife a flower? Like, that's what Jesus would have said. Oh, you're giving your wife flowers. That's great. Uh, but we nitpick and accuse. And what I don't want to do is say, well, the Mormon church is totally wrong. Um, because you can say that about any church. That church is wrong because they don't have Christ's presence in terms of him saying, you know, well, that's not right. This is correct. This is not correct. This is that. It's just all a matter of faith and trust. So for us to, and I think for us to, to even try to explain our, our old faith, to people, we have to be really cautious because it is our, God put us into that heritage for a reason. God put us into that for a reason. We have to ask, why did God do this to us? Not, why did God do this to us? But why, what is God trying to teach us? Why is he processing us through this system? And maybe it's because he's got to get us to where he needs us. Hold on one sec. I got to get a drink and not the kind of drink you guys are thinking of. 
Yeah, Matthew, not that kind of drink. <laughs> Great. Now I got to find that and cut it, Michael. All right. Sorry. Yeah, for for a history as wise, he calls himself Mr. Pib. Is we we record late nights usually on on Saturday on Fridays into Saturday morning. Sometimes we we'll go past midnight, one o'clock, and so we always joke that uh, when he's in a good mood, he's Dr. Pepper. But then around midnight, one o'clock, he turns into Mr. Pib. Yeah, it's so like it's a, a Dr. Good... Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing. But since but since leaving, you guys were honoring the word of wisdom before, or did you uh, have your first like coffee or after you left? Or is that one of the things you did that drove the spirit away and well, then you I, just fell from, you know? Well, I, I, I alluded to the fact that I wasn't really a good teenager. And, and so that was okay. that was me during high school uh, skipping seminary uh, to go to Denny's to have breakfast with my friends and drink coffee uh, during third period release time. And uh, yeah, to the point that my uh, seminary teacher had to make me class president to get me to come to class. Well, you probably were reading church history where it said that coffee is a sexual stimulant. <laughs> well, no, but <laughs> so I'm did, I'm leaving because I got I got all this school ahead. I got to meet some people. Yeah, I tried coffee in high school because I was kind of the same way. I was less active, but I kept falling asleep in calculus, and I hated the taste of coffee. I had to put you know it was like one part coffee to like ten parts cream and two parts sugar. So you know. I don't even know why I did that. I was like, I should have just drank Coca-Cola or something. Cause that's technically not against the word of wisdom, right? The church came out, I think in 2013 ish or 2014 and said, Coke is cool. But yeah, that's the only reason why I, I broke it. I didn't like the taste of it. I was, I just tried to stay awake. Yeah. Isn't it, uh, isn't it funny? Yeah. It's funny. The, the most rebellious thing that I did was drink postum. <laughs> you devil. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you devil. You were stealing yep. the neighbor's Sanka. <laughs> That's worthy of outer darkness, I think. I think that's the unforgivable sin is drinking postum. Oh my gosh. <laughs> What's interesting is Latter-day, a lot of Latter-day Saints I talked to that have left, they felt more guilty about drinking coffee than having sex before marriage. See, wow. those are the kind of things that it's like, and, and if you look at the graph of how many times they mention coffee in conference versus Jesus Christ, you know, or how many times they mention, what was, I saw this chart, it was like, I try not to laugh about it, but it's like, just love people. Uh, anyways, I'm not going to pull it up. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. I remember like for the longest time, you know, even for several months after I left the church, I was like, you know, I still want to be, I think it was like a social pressure. You know, I was like, I, I don't want to leave the church and look like I just wanted to become anti or ex Mormon just so that I could, you know, get drunk or drink all the coffee I wanted. So I tried to, to stick to that. And then over time, you know, as I was studying and understanding scripture, I was trying to be a good Berean and read it and understand it. And I thought, you know, really, there's nothing in scripture against any of those things, you know? There's, you know, like Jesus yeah. drank, like you said, he blessed wine, he drank wine. So. Well, he said, whatever comes, it's not what is put into the mouth, but what comes out of it that's corrupt um, is what Paul. I've been digging into Paul. I, I love Paul. Yeah. Uh, he's just. That's great. He's, he's a wild it's, man. Uh, it's, it's funny the way we, the way we beat ourselves up, though. Um, when I was. The, so we, we left in May of 2010 and May 20th is our anniversary. So we had gone out to um, an Italian restaurant for our anniversary and we, we hadn't yet made the decision to leave. Yeah. Um, and my, you know, my wife was like, well, you know, you want to have a glass of wine with me? You know, she comes from a background before joining Mormonism where, yeah. you know, she drank. And so she was like, do you want to have a glass of wine for our anniversary? And I remember just sitting there like sweating, physically sweating, worried that 
someone from our ward might wander in and the chances of that in Cincinnati are pretty low just given the the demographics you know and but I'm sitting there sweating just worried that you know oh, somebody's going to come in and see me you know but uh but I enjoyed I it so <laughs> I wish I remembered there was an EFY counselor from Cincinnati that I dated I can't remember anyways you would probably know the family because mm. uh, there's not a lot of Cincinnati but uh yeah no it's interesting the whole dynamics of uh what you can and can't do and things you worry about. And as a teenager, you're obsessed with how far can I go? And, Hmm. um, you know, so many of these things, um, there's such pressure. There's enough pressure as it is in our world for teenagers, but you add on top of that. Um, it's interesting. And my daughter, you know, is 14 is in seminary and I love what she's learning. And we have a lot of conversation. Um, and she'll, she'll say things to me like, yeah, I don't know about Joseph Smith. There's something off. I said, well, focus on Jesus. Um, read, look for all the scriptures about Jesus and really soak that in. And she says, but dad, I, I just, you know, I don't, I haven't felt the spirit. I, I haven't felt the spirit in a long time. Uh, what am I doing wrong? I said, well, do you want to feel it? She goes, yeah, I want to feel it. I said, okay, let's close our eyes. And I just started describing the cross and Jesus on the cross. And, you know, it's a pretty gory thing when you're a teenager and you learn about a man hanging on a cross and the nail. But where she started to feel the spirit was I started reading to her some of the scriptures in the New Testament about him taking our place. Uh, the Peter and Paul about the Savior making amends that it's that we would we should be on that cross. But God comes down and in Christ suffers on that cross for us. And she started to feel it. And now to this day, it's been about, you know, a year. She tells me every time she's discouraged and she can't feel it in church, she thinks about the cross. And so I don't, I'm not going to go and say, oh, look, look at all this stuff about the past. I trust God to lead her where she's supposed to go. And I'm not the Mormon generation parent that has to constantly parent, make sure You've got your temple recommend and you're doing this and this and this and this, um, or I'd probably still be in, you know? I think that's, I think that's what Paul's approach too. If you read all of his epistles in the new Testament, he's just constantly boasting of the cross, pointing people to the cross, <laughs> preaching the cross. That's, that's his whole focus. And so that really, that was a struggle for me as a Latter-day Saint, because like you said, there's so many periphery aspects to it. So many organizations, so many callings, so many requirements, and it's yeah. like, and, and so many general conference addresses that are, that I, I felt personally weren't focusing enough on Jesus yeah. or just, or just sitting in fast and testimony meeting and, you know, the, the travel logs and, you know, like people talking about how bad their week was. And it's like, I'm not saying that they shouldn't express that, but I just felt like a drought. There was a drought of Jesus. I was just in a desert and I was just completely parched. And, yeah. and you just, you just want to drink of Christ when you find out that there's grace available that there's just this huge untapped well of grace and you've just been wandering around the desert your whole life. It's just such a life-changing experience. Um, See, I felt, I felt all that in the church. I felt all that. And I always felt though that I was unique and different from other people because I remember sitting in an elders quorum presidency, um, you know, Bishop Rick, elders quorum president, uh, like this, I worked with elder Bednar, on one by one, got him his first number one Billboard album, uh, and 
And so like, I've had all these crazy, amazing experiences. Um, and I remember sitting in a meeting with all these elders quorum presidents and the president was talking about Christ and feeling his love and spirit. And I was like, what do you mean you guys haven't felt his love and, or that you lack the spirit or you lack this? Or that? And I was confused why I was always feeling it in Jesus. But it's because I had that experience of seeing him suffer on the cross while I was suffering. And it wasn't something that made me different from those guys. It's just, that's the experience I had. And I wasn't any better than any of those guys. In fact, I wanted to be like those guys. Um, but but it's, you know, so I think there's a lot of people within the Latter-day Saint Church, a lot that know Christ and Christ knows them and they feel that. And I can't say honestly that God wants to lead them out. But when somebody leaves, I have to go, there's a reason um, for it. And it's for the greater good, because in the end, you know, the victor is his. He's already won. You know, the devil's days are numbered. But we pretty much create these like MacGyver moments that it's the end of the world um, if we're not doing this and this and this and this. So, um, yeah, one of the most one of the most important experiences I had is um, sitting in uh, my mother-in-law's Baptist church. We'd gone there for a um some type of service. I don't remember what it was. Some, I don't remember if it was an Easter service or what it was one evening we had joined them there and uh, we were still LDS and my, uh, my oldest uh, adopted daughter um, went forward when they had an altar call and, you know, knelt there with, with one of the deacons from their church and, and prayed. Uh, she was um, probably nine or 10 at the time. And I remember taking our, our son out and walking the halls and just kind of freaking out like what is happening here we're 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 mormon that's not supposed to happen you know she just was baptized a year or so ago mormon she's not supposed to go forward for an altar call at a baptist church what's happening here and um i, I remember that that experience vividly just being so distraught by that and then thinking on it later like why why was i so upset she's she's going forward expressing a need for right. a savior yes. right and it and it really kind of turned things upside down for me. And I remember we were, we were at the same Baptist church um, probably several years later and a new, uh, the new minister there was uh, preaching a sermon and, and he was doing a similar altar call and he made the statement, you know, that um, we here at, at, at Friendship Baptist Church, we don't, uh, we don't, we, we're not calling you to be a Baptist. It's not a church that saves you. Uh, Jesus Christ saves you. And that, when he said that, it 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 changed me. It, 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 I realized, you know, wow, you know, I I sat in the same church and, and walked its halls and and freaked out over my daughter going forward on an altar call and for nothing because she was she was feeling that need uh, for Jesus that we all have. I love that. Uh, you know, I'm after my divorce, I married Tina, uh, who was Catholic, and when we met on a cruise to the Holy Land. I was uh, one of those LDS celebrities with all the Idaho retired people going on a cruise. And uh, I met her and I thought she was Mormon because she didn't drink coffee and she was very healthy and didn't swear. And she just something really pure about her. And then I found out she was Catholic and I was like beside myself, like, what? Catholics have a smell. Catholics, you know, they smell like incense. Um, and I was like, but then she told me she worked for Rick Warren. Saddleback Church, uh, and she was in charge of helping him 
developed the Daniel plan, which was a word of wisdom for that church because the pastor looked down, couldn't see his shoes when he had to teach about Daniel. So he's like, oh no, I got to get healthy so I can preach a healthy sermon. And um, she kind of helped with that. I remember going to mass with her for the first time and she cried and I was annoyed by mass. I was like, I'm not at sacrament meeting. You know, uh, why is he, the music's almost as boring as ours. Why are we here? And I was there to support her and her mother. And she was crying and she was telling me how much she felt God's presence, but I didn't feel it. So I said, I thought something was wrong with me. Why was I being such a jerk? But then she would come to Mormonism and I'd hear someone bear their testimony about the savior and I'd cry and she wouldn't, she couldn't feel anything. So it opened my eyes to like, why is she having this spiritual experience? And I'm not, and I am, and she's not. And then we were in Sri Lanka and the first time in kind of a predominantly Muslim country. And I had my opinion of Islam because of Fox News and CNN. And I remember watching on TV and there was a a gentleman uh, that looked like a terrorist in a car. And he was on a walkie talkie talking to another person in a car on a walkie talkie. And they looked like they were racing. And I was like, this is a terrorist activity. What's going on? Well, they were calling in to report where their camel was in the race. It was a camel race. But my American mind said, these are terrorists, but that was false. I had false doctrine from the news, from America, telling me these are terrorists, when in fact they were just coaches trying to win the game for these camels from Dubai. So then then we go to this Hindu temple and... Uh, you know, we've traveled a lot. I've been in almost every country since married to Tina eight years ago. And uh, we uh, were in this Hindu temple and here's this beautiful couple fully dressed in all their colors. And I'm like, why, why are we here at this Hindu temple? They believe in like all these gods, like it's idol worshiping. <clears throat> but here's this young couple and they have a baby. And this couple was so in love with each other. And this baby, they gave the baby to their priest and the priest, you know, he's dressed just a gown and, and he's burning incense and he's offering up fruits and vegetables. You know, I'm like, there's Cain's offering right there, fruits and vegetables. <laughs> and yet they present this baby and the tears on the mom's face and on the father and the family and everybody. And I'm like, this couple is so committed to that child. They want to give that child a home, safety, love. And I thought, this is the most Christ-like thing right now, this love. And so right there, I was like, Christ has his hand somehow in this situation, even though he didn't create the Hindu doctrine. That's a church. But there in that moment is Christ. And I feel like we have to recognize things that are foreign to us, that are sacred to others, as potential Christ-like moments for them. That Christ has his hand in guiding their life. Because the love of that child, the love of those parents could lead them. Well, it's leading them. I mean, it's purity, it's love, it's the fulfillment of the law right there. So what I found to be a problem as a Mormon was I was always looking at things that were not part of us as wrong. And it's it's all through the eye of the beholder. And you have to go, that person is a child of God. What is God doing as a sovereign God in their life? You were going to say something, Michael? I was just going to ask if uh, if that would, would be the message that you would would share with Latter-day Saints if if they're listening 
I think for Latter-day Saints, because I know Latter-day Saints are listening, is uh, they need to, um, everyone should pursue a relationship with Jesus Christ and let him lead them. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7 is very clear, not just in the King James Version, but all the different Bibles, that that Christ is your high priest. Christ is the one that is guiding you and leading you. Let him lead you. Don't go on necessarily how you feel all the time. Go on applying things he taught and seeing the good in everybody. You know, he tried to teach his disciples um, how to love other people, and they struggled. They didn't know how to do it. But he kept persisting and kept persisting. Here we are today, again, three billion Christians. Um, the gathering has happened, and it's happening even more. We're going to get everybody. Is that love is the major essence of what Jesus is about. And when we're judging other people and we're questioning why they're doing this or that, it's none of our business. We have to go, God is in control. And our job is to love unconditionally everybody, no matter what. Hold no judgment, hold no courts, and offer our whole hearts. Yeah, no, that that's, uh, that is beautiful. And I just kind of brought me back because one of the things I used to say over the pulpit when I was giving talks in sacrament meeting, uh, not not long before I, I transitioned out, I think God was, was working on my heart, but I used to say that, uh, you know, when, when Christ was on the cross, it wasn't the nails that held him there. It was love. And, uh, yeah, I, I just, I think that Christ and, and what he did on the cross, that's really what Christianity is about. And when you put the more things that you put in between, you know, the, the seeker and, and that message, it's just distractions at the end of the day, it's yeah. just diluting the gospel message. And the, the gospel message is simply that Christ died for us on the cross. And, and he's, he was there as our donor to, to give us a new heart and to, to bring us to his kingdom. And yeah. it, it's simple and, and it's beautiful and nothing that we put in between is going to be as beautiful as that message. No. And I think that, I think that the, you know, if you listen to the last general conference, you know, there's a part of me that says they're using Jesus to re to to get away from things they need to correct. But then at the same time, it majority of people have no idea about the history. And so I praise them for putting Christ back at the center, getting rid of the angel Moroni on the temples. You know, I think that that's done. They're not going to do that anymore. Um, putting Christ in the conversation in everything. But there's always that little bit of me that goes, okay, they talk of Christ, they preach of Christ, they rejoice in Christ, but do they believe Christ? And I believe him because I'm a horrible person. I'm a sinner. Uh, I cannot manage myself. Uh, I got to the point where I was desperate for healing. I'd, I'd been in priesthood leadership. I was a young men's president. I was a elders corn president. I worked in the bishopric. I was, you know, I've had every position most middle-aged white guys that golf in Utah do. You know, I had the Dockers, I had nice white shirts and everything. And I loved it. But I was I was kind of a controversial young men's president because I created a video to inspire the guys to go on missions using Michael W. Smith's music and Skillet and uh, Crowder, Come As You Are. And the, I'd get into these weird conversations with the priesthood leaders about scouting and how we need to focus on scouting. I'm like, scouting's going to be gone. It's so irrelevant to Jesus. You know, and unless you drop a guy, a guy off in downtown 
and he has to get the Uber merit badge, you know, or IRS taxes merit badge, things that are actually beneficial uh, other than being on Survivor or alone. Great shows. Scouts would never survive, but it's like, we need to focus on spiritual stuff. And I kept telling Tina, my wife, we need to focus more on Jesus. We need to go down to like just two hours of church and um, they need to put a message in the home that's all about Jesus. And we got to get rid of this Mormon name because Mormon's not even a real guy. And, you know, it's got to be all Christ, Christ, Christ. And now we're seeing all this, but that's because I had read B.H. Roberts' blueprint, the way the life, you know, that was suppressed and and put in the First Presidency's archive and no one was allowed to read it until 85. So <clears throat> I think there's a beautiful way to tell the story of Joseph because he was a sincere, pious fraud. He wanted his parents to get along. They belong to different churches. Start a church. And, get, and he's a charismatic enough to get everybody to participate and be part of it. You know, and he uses the King James Version, but that King James Version from 1769 was later corrected because there were a lot of false translations in there. But those translations still remain in the Book of Mormon, um, even though those that translated the King James uh, were in error when they did it, the everything that's in italics in that version. Um, and, you know, it goes on and on and on. But I think we just have to look at the heart of people's intentions and love them unconditionally for what they want to do and achieve. How's that storm treating you over there? We're getting kind of close here to, to the end. I'm glad you you survived. So I've been talking nonstop. I apologize. I, I, I don't even know if this has helped anybody. I'm sure somebody's going to find it. Find There's somebody it. out there. Yeah, yeah, it's been great. We really appreciate you coming on. I, I am, you know, the one thing I really appreciate about this conversation is is the whole, uh, is Paul the, uh, the Campbellite. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and this is the headquarters mm-hmm. for the Church of Christ. And Alexander Campbell lived here. Um, and I've read so much of his works and his, you know, his cynical uh, review of the Book of Mormon. I love. And, you know, David Whitmer is one of my favorite people. His testimony was so profound and so beautiful. I've spent a lot of time reading uh, all the apostles that abandoned Joseph that are considered apostates and sons of perdition and all those things. I've read their material and, you know, the Nauvoo Expositor. Look, there's some bad stuff in the Nauvoo Expositor, but you got to admit the sincerity of those men begging, pleading, hoping, asking Joseph to stop what he was doing and go back to the pre-plural, the pre-polyandry, you know, Sidney Rigdon left, not because he had brain damage from getting tarred and feathered and his head hitting the rocks behind a horse. The prophet tried to marry his 19-year-old daughter. The love letter is in the Joseph Smith papers. Members of the church can read that. Sidney Rigdon was so offended that Joseph would try to seduce his daughter. That's why he left. That's why he comes back and basically tries to stand up to Brigham Young and say, Brigham Young will continue this practice. And they're like, what are you talking about? But then Sidney, you know, he takes off and starts his own church and it dies out. And James Strang, who was a 31-year-old who came to try to get the church after Joseph, confronted Brigham Young. He even translated scripture and tried to be like Joseph Smith. And people were like, oh, I like this guy because he translated some scripture. And he ends up, and Martin Harris joins his church. James Strange ends up getting murdered like Joseph, by two guys that were members of his church that were offended. So the, you know, Brigham Young was just uh, smooth. He's like Al Swearinger from uh, Deadwood. 
If you've ever seen Ted, you guys are too, you haven't seen Deadwood. It's a great show. He's like Al Swearinger from Deadwood. He's, he's, he's the bar manager, right? Yeah. So, you know, when Brigham Young went on his mission to New York, he took church money and invested in a tavern and he would go around and, and buy businesses. He was very smart, calculated. Uh, and he's the one that had a hard time accepting the Book of Mormon because he was a big into Alexander Campbell. Then he had a hard time accepting polygamy. But that's a guy, once you get him on board, he's going to win the Super Bowl for you. So the guy is a genius. Um, but I think a lot of what the church is, you know, dealing with now is a result of what Joseph started and Brigham Young propelled. You know, and then my answer is John Taylor, uh, who I love. But I also am like so bizarre. It's so bizarre, the whole thing. But I didn't live back then. So, you know, but the whole idea of widows, there being too many widows, you know, um, 14-year-olds are not widows. Yeah. They're just nice window dressings, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely hard to, kind of hard to come to terms with everything. And, um, you know, my, my family goes back to handcart days. Uh, my, my great-great-grandmother uh, came from Denmark and crossed the plains. And on, on the one hand, that's a, that's a really um, kind of inspiring story, right? She comes Absolutely. from Denmark. She cr- pulls a handcart across the plains to Utah, uh, ultimately settles uh, in Idaho. And, but, but then the, the story is she, she left behind a sick husband in Denmark, <laughs> you know? Um, so what, what's with that? You know, that it's just, it's, it's hard to come to terms with everything. Um, and I remember, I remember early on uh, in the, in my time after my mission, kind of having conversations online and talking to a good friend of mine um, uh, whom I won't mention by name, but um, he was kind of making the case to me that, uh, you know, he could never leave uh, Mormonism because of his ancestors. Um, and, you know, I, I come from a family where I've got pioneer stock on my mom's side and my dad's a first generation convert. And so I, <laughs> I look at things a little bit differently. Um, you know, I was like, well, if, if, if God is taking me elsewhere, I've got to go, <laughs> you know, so. And how do you know that's not your ancestors encouraging you mm. based on what they know now? The hearts of the fathers will turn to the children. The hearts of the children will turn to the fathers. And that is the spirit of Elijah. You know, uh, I think the temple and the family search, I think all that's just beautiful. It's become a spiritual thing, part of the religion. But people do that all the time. And your ancestors, you know, that's one of the things that I was told was, you know, how can you walk away when your ancestors sacrifice so much. And I said, it's precisely because I am a pioneer. And I don't know if you've heard Carolyn Pearson's poem that I posted, but she says that my ancestors were Mormon pioneers and God came along and dropped a feather of truth on those people. And the bird hasn't come by to, I don't know how she says it, but she says that the bird hasn't come by to drop any more truth, but it's okay, I'll be fine because my ancestors were Mormon pioneers. So it's this beautiful analogy of, you know, Mormons, the one thing God does with a Mormon is make them very confident and they can achieve a lot in life. So I think he's doing a lot to grow the Christian world by having, by handpicking people out of that faith um, for his purpose, for his reason. I don't understand it all. So thank you for, uh, taking your time to talk to us about all this and sharing your experience. I'm sure that it's been difficult. I hope, I hope that nobody's been too negative uh, with your announcements or 
or uh, your your faith change, but just like to thank you personally for coming on and expressing your your experiences, your ideas, your thoughts. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I hope it was helpful to some people. There's so much more, as you guys know. There's like it's like how do you how do you explain 15 years of God putting you through that birth canal again? You know, but it's a, it's a beautiful exodus. Yeah. And ironically, people have been amazing. That's what's crazy. People have been absolutely amazing. So uh, now that we're coming to a close here, um, I just want to ask you, how would, uh, how could people who are listening in on the podcast today um, find out more about your music and your charity work and all the things that you do? Well, thanks. Yeah. If you want to know about my music, you can ask Alexa. <laughs> And you can ask Siri, uh, my website, paulcardall.com. And when I transitioned out, I started a faith blog on Instagram. So it's called Paul Cardall Blog. And I share scriptures and sermons that inspire me every day. Um, and it's just kind of a visual diary. Um, yeah, so just, just go to my website. In fact, I have, a, I have a newsletter. If you sign up, there's a free song that's not available anywhere. Uh, it's a version of Pachelbel's Canon that uh, people love that song. Quartet's hated, but I, I did an arrangement of it, so you can get that because uh, I do a newsletter once a month. It's awesome. So, yeah, thank you. Good to talk to you guys. Yeah, it's, it's been an honor. Um, <laughs> I've been such a huge fan for so long. You're and awesome. uh, <laughs> I, like when I found out about you coming on, like I'm not normally on these podcasts, but my husband told me about it, and I was just like, so. <laughs> yeah. I so need me, <laughs> yeah, I mean, let me ask you guys, because, I mean, obviously you thought I was, like, totally in. Did you find out? Like, how did you find out? Because I'm so, curious. I found out from your post. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I, I saw someone post about it on John DeLynn's Mormon Stories. Yeah, John. And I was like, what? That happened? And so I I went over to your page and saw the post, and, uh, and then that's when I reached out to you. So I didn't realize the community is so large. I didn't realize 70,000 people are leaving a year just from Utah. Mm-hmm. Like I, I didn't know these numbers. Uh, yeah. I've had friends leave and I've been like angry at him. <laughs> what are you doing? Stay in the ship, stay in the boat. Well, there's another boat. And that's, that's kind of why we started the podcast just because it's so common for people to reject God altogether, reject religion or Christ. And so we wanted to kind of fill that space of showing how, you can, you don't need to stay in the church. If you feel, you know, if you feel you want to leave, there's, there's better, there's a better way, you know, you can still follow Christ. You don't need to be, you don't need to reject the baby with the bathwater, you know, to throw it all out that, that we, you should cling on to what's good and, and, you know, reject what you didn't, you know, what, what's not good essentially. Love that. I think what you guys are doing is amazing because yeah, I am concerned about members that leave and become agnostic. And I think it's just this grief process they're going through, but I do have trust like you guys, that Jesus is going to encounter them. Even Elizabeth Smart, in the worst circumstances, said you can't escape his love. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, for sure. Thanks again. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. 
You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness Podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. Also, you can check out our new YouTube channel, and if you like it, be sure to do lay hands on that subscribe button and confirm it. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen and help spread the word. You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well. Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. Stay bright, flyer flies. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God the Word made flesh the risen Son Heaven and Earth will pass away but the Word of God church would remain upon this rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against us cause you have power to keep your word unspoiled in purity heaven and for